morning, Parkview Church. Blessings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 35 is one of those Old Testament passages that's like Mount Everest. It is glorious and wonderful and mighty, and the fulfillment of that happening in our passage today is simply just gorgeous, thrilling. And so it's exciting to be opening God's Word today. We're going to be in chapter 3 of the book of Acts. It'll be really important for you to have your Bibles open this morning so that you can see that what I am speaking and preaching on uh, is simply not my ideas. It's not generated from my human cleverness, but it is the very Word of God. And so very important to be looking at God's Word open before us. We're committed to learning Christ together as a church. We do that best by having our Bibles open and our hearts ready to, uh, to the Lord to show us Jesus. Okay? Now, Acts, let's remember together what Acts is all about. Acts is about newness of life in the resurrected Christ. Newness of life in the resurrected Christ. That's what one of my mentors, uh, years and years ago, I was sitting in a church and they went through the book of Acts and my, my pastor mentor talked about every Sunday. Acts is about the newness of life in the resurrected Christ. And we see this uh, in the story so far. Acts chapter 1 is about the plan of the resurrected Christ that Jesus ascends and he says that he's going to promise that his Holy Spirit would come to empower his church to speak this good news that Jesus is the true king who will establish and bring about God's kingdom, his rule of love and justice and peace and forgiveness, that Jesus will do that. But he'll do that as his gospels preach, starting in Jerusalem, then Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. That's the promise. That's the plan of the resurrected Christ in chapter 1. Chapter 2, then the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. And then Peter declares this wonderful sermon. The, the climax of Acts 2 is verse 36, where it says, This Jesus whom you crucified, God is raised from death to prove that he is now Lord and Christ, that he is the promised Christ, Christos, the anointed one in the line of David, who would come to bring God's kingdom of peace and forgiveness and love and justice. That Jesus is that person that God is going to use to renew this whole creation. That's Acts chapter 2, and then it transforms the early church we saw last week, the very end of Acts 2, and how their life together, the apostles' teaching into prayer and the breaking of the bread and fellowship. And uh, two notes in that first section talks about how they're daily, in Acts 2, the very end, you'll notice it says daily they're going to the temple for prayer, and that God was doing signs and wonders, these miracles that were signs, in a sense, billboards planted in real history to point beyond themselves to Jesus as true Lord. And it's really important to keep those two things in mind as we turn now to Acts 3, where we're going to see two of the disciples entering the temple as they do each day. Luke basically zooms in here on, on, uh, in chapter 3, zooms in, and we're going to see a healing, a sign that's going to point beyond itself to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And the question that I want to ask this morning is, what are the problems in your life or the problem that you think needs most change, that you wish God would change in your life? The second question is this, what's your expectation? What's your expectation of how that problem will be resolved, how that problem will be solved? What's your problem and what's your expectation? We're going to follow this story here in Acts 3. I'm going to read it out loud and we're going to all listen together as God speaks to us and shows us a story of a man who had a really big problem and he had a certain expectation and God, as he's always apt to do, 
goes above and beyond his expectations. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a lame man from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that's called the beautiful gate, so that he could ask alms, charitable donations, of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping. He stood and began to walk and entered the temple with, with them and walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. This is God's word. It is true and given to us in love. So let's pray together. Father, we come to your word as needy children, but expectant children, begging you to give us what we most desperately need, which is to see Jesus, your son, and all of his power and glory. So by your Holy Spirit, help me come as a servant this morning, first to your word, and then secondly to these people coming in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Help us learn all that you teach, obey all that you command, delight in all that you love, and trust all that you promise in the gospel of Christ, your son. In his name we pray, amen. So what are your problems this morning? What are your problems, and what is your expectation of how those problems will be resolved? Problem and expectation in terms of solution. Well, this is the story of how one man had a big problem and expected a certain type of solution. And as any good story begins, we begin in uh, verses 1 and 2 that shows us a man with the problem. Verse 1, Peter and John, the disciples, are walking into the temple. And remember the background here. The temple, the temple was the place in the Old Testament that people understood that God's name the Old Testament talks about how God's name dwelled in the temple, meaning his very presence and power were like a Wi-Fi hotspot of God's power for his people and their problems. That's what the temple was, that Wi-Fi hotspot. And Peter and John are entering the temple for prayer, but then Luke immediately turns our gaze away from Peter and John to look at a man who's sitting outside the temple, a man with a big problem. Look at verse 2. A man who has three strikes against him. First, he's a, a lame man from birth, meaning he's paralyzed from birth. A congenital disease, which we later learn in Acts 4. He's about 40 years old, and therefore this is a daily problem, a persistent problem that he is dealing with day after day after day here at the temple. And others, the second thing that we notice, the second strike against him, is that others are carrying him to the temple to be placed outside at the beautiful gate. He's unable to move himself. He's unable to change his situation. He's totally physically dependent on other people. And then third, verse 2 tells us, the third thing, is that he's asking for alms of those entering 
the temple. Alms is just a biblical word in the first century for charitable donations to the poor people in the Jewish community to help them survive on a daily basis. And so here he is, entirely financially dependent on others. So here is a man, physically paralyzed for 40 years, day after day, unable to change his circumstances, and totally dependent on other people. In the very least, he's a social outcast to the hot spot of God's temple, the place of God's power to change God's people's lives. So ultimately, he's seen as someone who is lacking something significant, a man who is faced with a big, big problem. Parkview, what is your problem this morning? And yet as he's sitting there with his problem, look at verse 3. He sees Peter and John about to go where? Where are they going? Into the temple. And what does he do? He asks to receive alms. And in response to this question, verse 4, Peter directs his gaze at him, and as does John, and they say, look at us. Now here's a moment, if we would just slow down and think about this, it's a moment of true compassion. It's a moment, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, that resonates a lot with what the Lord Jesus was like, who noticed those in his community who never had the Wi-Fi hotspot password, we might say, to have access to God's power in the temple. There Jesus was in the first century walking around, and those who are social outcasts, he moves directly to them to help and notice them and talk with them and to touch them. And here they are looking at this man, and they say, look at us. And so in verse 5, this man with his problem fixes his attention on these two disciples. And notice what the language says in verse 5. He is expecting, expecting to receive something from them. Now, this is the third time in just four verses, and the Bible does not waste words. A lot of stories like this are very short, so we have to think carefully about how each word is used. And so the third time in four verses that Luke is emphasizing the underlying expectations of this man. A man with a big problem, a helpless man, and he expects a very simple solution, doesn't he? He, he, he needs alms. He needs money so that he can survive another day. To him, his, in his thinking, his problem is that he needs to simply survive. The solution is alms, money given to him. Now, unlike this man, we are not first century paralyzed people seeking the solution to our big problem with the expectations that alms will resolve it. Yet like this man, we here in the 21st century all have problems. We all have dilemmas that cause us discouragement, persistent pain that causes us disappointment, problems that make us feel helpless. And just like this man, with our problems come certain expectations of what we think will solve them. And this is especially true of our current culture. Let's just pause for a moment and think about this for a little bit. Scholar Alan Noble, in his magnificent book, you are, uh, you are Not Your Own, he argues that in the modern West, what we are experiencing right now in our contemporary culture is spiritual, relational, and cultural sickness because we are obsessed, us modern people, we are obsessed with trying to fix our problems through humanly designed techniques. Several examples, okay? 
We know that our lives don't measure up, that we feel like we are not enough, that we are maybe not living out of our true authentic selves, that our lives feel like a continual burden. And so we look to certain tools to help us overcome these problems. Examples, okay? I mean, think about the hassle it is, especially if you have kids, to go to the store to pick up groceries. So what we've done is we have designed apps on our phone, which we can click buttons and then have the groceries. Literally, this happens nowadays. Did you know this? And also we shoot rocket people to the moon. This is crazy to me. Groceries will come to your front door without you ever having to leave your front door. Isn't that amazing? Buy an app on our phones, okay? Or the problem of stress at work or school, okay? We have, to fix that problem, mindfulness apps or meditation apps that help us calm down. Or we can go the other end of the spectrum and download kind of workflow apps to make us more efficient and use our time better at work, right? Fixing our problems through humanly designed techniques. That's what we in our modern world do, Now, maybe the problems are a little bit deeper than the ones I just said, the examples I just gave. Maybe it's a family problem for you because our mother or our father were such foolish people or right now our kids are such a mess. And so what we do is we look to therapy to help us become stronger, healthier individuals. Or our greatest problem is a lack of intimacy and understanding with our spouse. And so we try better communication techniques to foster intimacy, or maybe it's our current level of income that's our problem, and so we look to better stock options, or a tighter budget, or our work environment is toxic or unfulfilling. So we go online to LinkedIn, or wherever it is, and we sharpen our CV or our resume for the next job application, or we have a chronic illness, and what we're trying to do is new methods of healing. Okay, Now, let me clarify something right now. These are significant problems, they are, and in their right contexts, These attempts to fix them and to deal with them can be wise, God-given methods to handle these situations. And we, as Christians, knowing that our God is the true creator, ought to be the ones who are willing and humble enough to use whatever God-given means to deal with our difficulties. But the issue is this. It's the issue is that when these human-made techniques become the sole focus of how we try to resolve our deepest problems. And we begin believing and fixating upon the fact that our main problem is something external to us that is manageable or fixable through human effort or human technique. Because here's a paralyzed man totally helpless in his condition, and he's asking for charitable donations of alms from people so that he can have enough food to eat that day. Because according to him, his greatest problem is to survive. And he expects, verse 5 again, would you look down with me one more time at verse 5? He expects to receive something from humans to sufficiently provide for his deepest problem. And so notice what we are doing in the examples I gave above, right? We are expecting something human to fix our problem. This is what we learn from this man in verses 1 to 5. The natural tendency, Parkview, of our human hearts, if we are kind of leave them in neutral, according to our thinking and intuitions, is that our problems can only be fixed by human-created plans or human-given resources, whether it's a first-century man looking to people providing alms 
Or it's a 21st century man or woman looking to their new career to fix the ache that is in their heart. But what Acts 3 is telling us today is this. We all have problems, deep problems, pervasive and persistent problems, yes. And these problems can feel like total paralysis to our lives. And what we typically expect, according to verse 5, is that human, some human devised means can resolve these issues. And so there we are, sitting next to the man, staring into the eyes of Peter and John, just expecting to receive something so that you and I can survive the next 24 hours because our lives are so exhausting and so discouraging. And in that very moment with our problems and our expectations of what can actually help us, God's word shows us how Jesus radically overwhelms and goes beyond our expectations. Because in verse 6, Peter says to this man, silver, notice what he says first, silver and gold I do not have. Translation, human-generated resources or techniques that you expect to solve your problem I've got none of them. But what I do have, I give to you, verse 6, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Because your greatest need is not some problem in your life external to you that can be fixed by human-generated means. Rather, your greatest need is a resurrection. The resurrection language is repeated in verse 6, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then again in verse 7, did you notice in verse 7, it says, and Peter raised him up. It's the same word used again and again for the resurrection of Jesus throughout the book of Acts. You see, the point is this, silver and gold cannot ultimately resolve this man's problem because his problem, the deepest problem he actually faces is spiritual death apart from his life-giving creator. Now, that's what this man's healing is pointing us towards, okay? Because, and I say this, because later in chapters 3 and 4, we learn from what the apostles say that this man's physical healing is a sign of a deeper spiritual healing that's planted in the ground here in the first century, a sign that is pointing upward for every generation to look up and see that Jesus of Nazareth is the name, the name with the power to rescue us from our deepest problem of sin and death. Did you get this? It's no longer a place called the temple. Where do we begin the story? Walking into the temple. It's not the place called the temple where God's name dwells, where his presence and power is. But now, through the death and resurrection of Christ, it is not a place, but the person of Jesus that has the power to transform lives. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Scholar Anthony Alan Thompson to help me see this radical transformation. Notice in verse 2, compare the verbs in verse 2 and verse 8. Verse 2, 
The man is lame from birth, being carried, laid daily, asking alms outside. And then in verse 8, what do you notice? Verse 8, he is now leaping, standing, walking, entering into the temple, temple from lame to leaping, being carried to standing, laying daily to walking, asking alms, verse 2, outside the temple, verse 8, entering into the temple, walking, leaping, praising God. Again, it says it repeats it in verse 8. And guess what happens between verse 2 who the man was, and verse 8, who the man becomes, is verse 6, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Because there's no such thing as a human-created technique that can ultimately fix your worst and deepest problem as a human. The only thing, Parkview, that can fix what is most deeply wrong with us is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if God was in the full-time business of alleviation of symptoms through some human-generated means, then there was no need for Jesus of Nazareth to die and suffer under the wrath of God for our sin on a Roman cross. And certainly there was no need for him to be raised from death if what's most significantly wrong with us can be fixed by us and our talent, and our ingenuity, and our cleverness, and our phone apps. But if our problem is so deep, and so terrible, and so impossible for humans to fix, then it required the death of God's own son, and it required the resurrection of that very son from death to newness of life. Brothers and sisters, God is in the full-time business not of problem alleviation, first and foremost, but as whole life transformation. That is the business that God has entered into, and his business is a booming. Because we serve a living, resurrected Jesus who is right now ruling over all creation, and he has the proofs of his death and nail-scarred hands and feet, and yet he has conquered death and sin and God's judgment and is ruling over all things right now, alive and well. It is only the power of a God-generated resurrection of a crucified Jewish carpenter named Jesus that can actually change your life. Parkview, some of us right now are languishing in the paralysis of our problems. Our sin problem is hindering our growth in Christ. Our suffering problems are so terrible and hard. And on the one hand, I want to say, yes, that is true. Yes, that may be real to your experience. I am not denying that. I am not denying any of the problems in your life. But what happens to Christians most often, and this is the work of the enemy Satan, is what he will do in your life, no matter what your problems are, is to keep you fixated in your mental thinking day after day on the problem, on the sin struggle, on the relationship issue, on how the kids are misbehaving, on the financial situation, on the problem and the problem and the problem and the problem. But what Acts 3 is doing and why God above has put Acts 3 in the Bible is so that you would lift your eyes to the resources of the risen Jesus Christ who in the first century can make a lame man leap for joy and in the 21st century can transform the deepest parts of who you are. 
We must have a blessed fixation, not on our problems, but on the solution and power of Jesus Christ. Now, some of us might be asking at this point, wait, I have encountered the resurrection power of Christ, yet my life still feels so full of problems, both physical and emotional and spiritual. So what gives? Does Jesus really change me? I remember hearing uh, from a pastor uh, in an article how he talked about how one of the things that COVID showed him, and he was a pastor of a really large church, is it started making him doubt, man, does Jesus really change lives? Because COVID exposed all these weak areas in their church, and, and he started doubting, man, does Jesus actually have resurrection power? Doesn't, don't you ever ask that about yourself? Where's the power of Christ in my life with my problems? Well, I, I want us to notice something again closely at this text. It brings us back to something that we might have missed in our first reading, but I hope that you saw the connection in our Old Testament scripture reading, Isaiah 35. If we just look at the overall shape of this story, what is happening? It begins in verse one and two with a lame man, and at the very end, this lame man is leaping. And if you notice the very language in Isaiah 34, 35, it is, it is this promise of God. Thousands of years ago, God promises to his sin-weary and suffering people, a people riddled with problems, problems abounding in God's people thousands of years ago. And he says, good news, I'll make a promise to you. And it says that he himself will come with salvation. He will come to fix and put right all that has been damaged and ruined by sin and suffering. And the Lord will come to take the burdens of our problems off of our backs and to give us sweet relief. And Isaiah 35 states that the one of the major signs, identifying markers of this salvation that has actually come from the Lord, do you know what it is? It's lame man leaping like a deer. And the rest of the passage talks about singing and joy and overflowing gladness and suffering in tears being removed forever. And all of those things happening because there's this identifying marker of a lame man leaping for joy. In part view, do you get then what's happening? In Acts 3, what God is telling us is that the Isaiah 35 new creation that people in the first century were expecting was going to happen thousands of years later, that this new creation where healing at the deepest part of who you are and the forgiveness of sins and your relationship restored with God, that those things, you don't have to wait thousands of years from now, but those things have been grabbed by the resurrection of Jesus and rocket launched into the first century, not fully, but beginning. The beginning of the new creation started in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what the promise is for all of us is this, that in the resurrection of Jesus, the beginning of God's new creation comes to deal with our deepest problems and our sins and our sufferings and our pains and everything in your life that sin and suffering have taken and captured and flipped upside down and backward through the new creation of Jesus Christ, the promise is that God will one day put right side up and forward. 
Because Jesus Christ loves you that much. And Jesus Christ loves you so much, death cannot hold him down. Sin could not hold him down. God's judgment could not hold him down. But he burst out of that tomb three days later with a heart throbbing with love and passion for you in the midst of your worst problems, with a signpost in his resurrection that there is coming a day and we have to wait and wait and wait. But these are momentary and light afflictions in comparison to the resurrection joy that changes lame people to leaping and sorrow and sighing to joy and happiness forever in the new creation. C.S. Lewis says it like this. People misunderstand the promise of the new creation. They say that some temporal suffering, some temporal suffering, some big problem in our life, that no future bliss can actually make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, that the new creation, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Jesus Christ loves you so much, he works all things for the good of those who love him. In Christ, Jesus takes death and makes resurrection. In Christ, behold, he is making all things new. So while you and I are not promised right now the alleviation of all of our problems, we are promised the power and presence of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who by his Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us and in his compassionate heart walks with us patiently day after day amidst the stumbling and the burdens and the problems to assure us that there is coming a day where the heavens will break forth, Jesus will descend, and he will wipe away, his thumb will wipe away from your eyes all of your tears, and he himself will finally take off all of those problems. And all of this is given to us because a lame man in the first century was healed and leapt for joy and walked around. And you know what happens when a church like us, amidst all of our problems and our continued struggle with sin and our continued issues and all of those things, when we encounter the risen Christ and his power transforms the deepest parts of who we are, no longer dead in sin and under God's condemnation, but now alive to God through Jesus Christ, when a church encounters the resurrected Jesus, do you know what happens? When transformation by Jesus occurs, witness happens. You see the rest of the passage very quickly. We don't have much time left. Verses 9 to 10, the people in the community, they see him, verse 9. They see him what? Walking and praising God. Verse 10, they recognize him as the one who sat at the gate asking for alms. And they were surprised and amazed at what had happened to him because his whole life had been transformed from day-to-day struggle to now power and joy in leaping with God. We might say this, his identity was no longer located as the man with the problems, who day after day, they kind of just walked by, and there's James again. There he is with his problems. Hey, James, you know, day after day. Hey, James, there you are. Hey, James, how you doing? The guy with the problem. 
No, his identity is now relocated in the power of Christ. And it's a witness to this community. You see, one of the greatest evidences of the Lord's work in your life is that the people around you notice that something different has happened to you. You used to be the discouraged one. You used to be the highly anxious one and the fearful one and either struggle with this type of sin type of person. But now you're the one with a, amidst maybe even all of that, though you've turned to Christ and by step by step by the Spirit's power, you have your head held high, rejoicing in the Lord who is your strength because you believe that in the first century, Jesus Christ was raised from death and he ascended and then he healed a man lame and made him into a leaping man filled with joy. And if he can do that, then maybe, just maybe, Parkview, God could transform you at the deepest parts of your most significant problems. We look at the deep problems of our lives and we expect so often that us as humans can devise some resource that could somehow fix it. But what this passage has shown us is that at the deepest level of who we are, we are dead and need resurrection, the very power of Christ. I'll end with this. The famous hymn I kept thinking about, singing about it, Rock of Ages. Some of you might know it. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Well, verse two and three, I kind of just slightly retweaked them in accordance to this story. And this is how I'll end, okay? A little poem for you that made me think about what's happening in this story. Here we go. And then we'll pray and move to communion. All the labors of human hands could not meet my problem's demands. Could human zeal, no respite, no. Could human gifts forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must raise and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply do thy cross and to my cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. To thy power Lord, I fly. Raise me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the resurrection life in the resurrected Christ. You are so precious to us, Jesus. We love you. By your Holy Spirit, would you convince us that all these things from Acts 3 are actually true and that this is the Jesus who right now is given to us in the gospel and is celebrated now in this meal, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Communion, friends, is the meal of love. It is given to us by the Lord to teach us and to assure us of who we are in Christ. We are so weak. We've got so many problems. And we so often doubt God's love for us. We doubt God's power for us in Christ. And so in his kindness, God not only every Sunday preaches the gospel to us for our ears, but this now he will, in a sense, preach the gospel to us for our hands to touch and our mouths to taste, a visible representation of Christ's death on behalf of sinners. And so that means that those of us who partake of this, who enjoy this, are those who by faith have trusted in Jesus and his resurrection power to save us from death. So if you're here and you've not yet trusted in the power of Jesus to change your life, we ask that you would not celebrate this with us and instead spend time reflecting and thinking if this is true and if what God is doing in your life right now.
So what we're celebrating here is the greatest news in all the earth, that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Friends, this is the heart of Christianity. It's what Parkview Church is all about. So on the night that he was betrayed to crucifixion, Jesus shared one last meal with his followers. He took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, family, the body of Christ, given for you in love. Let's take it together. And then in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of new covenant in my blood, the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you drink of it, you do this in remembrance of me, family, the cup of forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Let's do this together. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is everyone who takes refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we confess with the whole church today that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, that Christ will come again. And through this meal, Father, we together as a whole church see the depth of your love for us. We, th- we see your power displayed through the weakness of crucifixion to raise us from death to newness of life. And for that, we praise you and we love you. And so we wait eagerly, Lord, for Jesus, for you to return and to restore all things so that we, for the last time and the final time, would celebrate this meal and eat this meal with you, the marriage supper of the Lamb and the beauty of your presence forever in the new creation. Until that day, we wait eagerly and we praise you. In Jesus' name.